Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. So, Lord, we just pray that you would just bless these people. Lord, we thank you for the impartation that's come already. We thank you for the impartation that's coming now, and we, and we thank you for the impartation that's, that's coming later tonight. We just bless what you're doing in them. We pray, Lord, that you would shift the culture of heaven in them. And Lord, I pray that they, whatever level they came at, that they came here with, that they would leave with another level of the kingdom. You give your spirit without measure. So Lord, we just release the spirit of God on every single person. Or let, them, let many of them be drunk in the Spirit for days. Not while they're driving. Amen. Amen. You know, I just want to say a thing about impartation. Bill was like, um, really exhorting us tonight in the, in the uh, staff room. I, I really do think that there is something... Uh, extraordinary about impartation in this conference tonight, and uh, I'm not exactly sure what it is. I think impartation is often uh, easily experienced and hard to explain. But, um, you know, in Romans 1, and this is not my message tonight, but in Romans 1, Paul said to the Romans, who probably the most profound theology in the New Testament besides Jesus' gospels and Jesus' words in the gospels is probably Romans. And he writes 16 of the most profound chapters to the Romans. And in chapter 1, he says, I long to come to you that I might impart a spiritual gift to you that you may be established. In other words, I'm about to write 16 of the most profound chapters on theology that had ever been written in the history of the world, but you still won't be established until I come to you. And there's just some things you can only get through experience. And I, we love, you know, we're, we're doing online schools and all that. We love all that stuff. But there's just some things you have to be present for. And I really do believe, I don't think necessarily somebody has to touch you. I do think the room is often pregnant. It's like a good virus that you catch. And you go home and you, you start praying and things happen that never happened before. And you're like, I don't know what. I was sharing with uh, some of the, the staff tonight that Bill and our elder team, when we were in Weaverville, went to see John Wimber in a vineyard conference many years ago. And we always, uh, our habit on Sunday mornings was after after. Bill would get done preaching. The elders would come up with uh, the eldership team, husbands and wives. And it was, uh, I think there was about eight of us, so it would be like 16 of us. And we would just pray for whoever wanted prayer. We were, we were the prayer team. When they came back, I, I didn't go to the vineyard conference that all, the other seven elders went to and Bill went. And when they came back, uh, we were praying as we always did on Sunday morning, just the normal prayer, people coming up for whatever they needed healing or, or just whatever, whatever they, whatever they needed prayer for. And, and so we were, had basically seven lines like we always do. And all six of their, I guess there was eight lines, all seven of the lines that I wasn't in, that, I, that they were leading, all the people were falling down under the Spirit. And I was the only line that wasn't. And we had never experienced that before. We'd seen it in other places, but um, we had never... That wasn't a common manifestation when we prayed for people. And that was the manifestation that happened with all of them praying for people. So after that Sunday, I'm like, hey, hey, pray for me. Whatever you guys got at the vineyard, I need that. And uh, so there's sometimes there are things that are, you know, they're, they're tangible, but they're hard to explain. So all that to say, 
uh, I just wanted to do what was Bill was doing earlier, and that is raise your expectation that uh, some things are better caught than, than taught, and there's things that are happening in articulation that were powerful. Um, being last is awesome. It's also like, wow, everyone said, <laughs> it's funny, I, I, I woke up at 3 o'clock this morning, and I had three words in my mind, um, courage, uh, risk, and perseverance. So I wrote those down in the middle of the night, and I felt like the Lord wanted me to talk about courage, perseverance, and risk. And then Eric got up this morning, and he didn't use every one of those words, but he used same scriptures and everything. I'm like, oh, maybe I was supposed to like tell Eric, like, this is what you're supposed to preach. But, so, but I decided to just stay with the notes that I had. And so I want to talk tonight about making history. And we, we've heard, um, Bill opened this, the session, this uh, conference, with talking about the fact that we were to make disciples of nations. And I really believe that some, I think that low self-esteem is really stealing our ability to make disciples of nations. How many of you understand that you're a royal priesthood? You're a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. You know, there is no layman in the body of Christ. Jesus said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And that, that, that phrase is twice in the book of Revelation. And the, and the word Nicolaitan means conqueror of the lay people. They were the ones who theologically put people in two categories, put believers in two categories, the ministers and the people who got ministered to, the lay people. But how many know, Jesus said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans. and how many know that you're all called to be priests? In the Old Testament, there was a Levitical priesthood. Only one group of people were priests to the Lord. But how many understand that when you got saved, you became part of a royal priesthood? In the Old Testament, they were a priesthood, but in the New Testament, they're a, we are a royal priesthood. And not only that, but we, corporately, are a holy nation. How many understand that nations actually, nations actually disciple nations? So you're not little. I, um, I was in a meeting recently in our city with a very, a very, uh, very intelligent businessman who holds a very prominent place in our city. And he was in a meeting with a, a bunch of other city leaders at my house. And, and uh, I had been with him several other, on several other occasions. And I think about maybe four or five meetings in a period of a couple of months. And in every single time that he, before he would say something profound, because he's really very intelligent and had a lot to say about our city, and was really, really, God's really raised him up as a father in our city, he would say, you know, I know I'm not in, I know I'm nothing, I know I'm, you know, I'm really, I know I'm not, you know, I, I just, I just want you to know that I, I know that I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm, I'm just a, a broken man who God's using, you know. And he would preference his, Amazing statements with that. And by the fifth time that he was at my house, I was getting angry. So I don't know him super well, but just well enough. So everybody happened to leave. The, all the other leaders happened to leave early, and he was left with his friend. And so I went outside, and I felt, I actually did feel the Lord on this. And I said, he's a, he's a, very, he's a very tall man. And I said, you are not little, and you are killing me every time you take five minutes to tell us how small you are before you wow us with your wisdom. You're the only one who doesn't know you're amazing. 
and God wants to raise you up as a father in this city, and your low self-esteem and false humility is killing our city. And he looked at me and said, I'm sorry. I said, don't ever do that again. (laughs) And his friend looked at me, and he goes, Chris is right. (laughs) Then I gave him a hug and gave him some really good stuff after that. But I, I just say, like, I was just like, you are amazing, and you thinking you're not is hurting our city. How many understand if we're supposed to make disciples of nations and we're not, somebody else is? And in the vacuum of the vortex of the leaders, when the righteous rule of the people rejoice, in the, in the absence of God's people leading, how many understand that something else is leading? <laughs> And so for us to like apologize for being alive is not humility. It's stupid. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Some of you are like, why didn't they send Chris out? And I want to say they tried, but I made a lifetime covenant to stay with Bill the rest of my life. So too bad Banny didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, I want to say, I, really, I do, really do believe that false humility is actually killing us. It's actually taking away our God-given anointing. Now, I believe in true humility, but how many of you know humility isn't thinking less of yourself? It's just thinking of yourself less. And by the way, when you're thinking bad about yourself, it's still all about you. You're still the center of attention. <laughs> Good word, Chris. Thank you for that. So I want to talk about three core values. I don't know if I'll finish them all tonight, but three core values of history makers. And number one is courage. And I think it's been shared today or this week uh, for sure. But I ask our students about, I started doing this, our school's about, uh, we're in our 20th year this year. I think I started doing this in the third year of school ministry. And I said, I want you to take a piece of paper out right now, and I want you to write down what you would do if you were 10 times bolder. And we'll wait. And so we wait about five minutes, and I say to them when when they're done, I said, if there's one thing on that paper, then fear has reduced you. If you wrote one thing on that paper that you would do if you were 10 times bolder, then fear has actually told you what to do. And I'd like to suggest to you that fear is the most socially accepted sin in the church. And probably the most, probably the most common destructive thing in our lives is fear. Now, I understand there's other things that can be just as destructive, but commonly destructive. The thing that takes most people out, the thing that reduces most of us, is fear. I have... Uh, over the years, talk to many people who, you, who are racked with fear, and I say to them, you know, I, I, it feels like there's fear in your life. And they're like, I don't feel afraid. You know, if you're, for instance, afraid of flying, but you never get on a plane, how many know you're not going to feel fear because you reduced your life to accommodate it? And I'd, I'd like to propose that the dogs of doom stand at the doors of destiny. That literally, that what you're 
There's two, two oh, there's lots of ways, but two of the main ways to know what you're supposed to be doing in life is what do you love? Like, what would you do for free? And the other thing is, what are you terrified of? Because how many know the enemy only, he only protects treasures. The children of Israel were supposed to go into the what? Help me. Promised land. Where's the one place they were afraid to go? The promised land. And they, they saw giants in the promised land. You know, you can talk your molehills in the mountains. <laughs> do you know that the giants, when they finally got into the land, do you know that the giants that they were afraid of, they never encountered until the days of David? I'm saying, the thing that they feared, the reason why 1.5 million people got a prophecy, you're going into a promised land, and only two people out of 1.5 million actually experienced it, wasn't because it was a bad word, but because fear reduced them to what they could do. And what I'm getting at is this. Do you know that the only two people that actually received the word, you're going into the promised land, from Egypt to the promised land. Eric shared so uh, well today about the, the children of Israel and all the miracles they saw. The only two people that actually received the promise and actually walked in the promised land was Joshua and Caleb. And when Joshua and Caleb got into the land, they never encountered a giant till the days of David, which was... I don't know, 100 years later probably. And my point is this. The fear of the future is often worse than the future. (laughs) Winston Churchill, I think, he, he said, I knew an old man who said, I had many troubles in my life, most of which never really happened. It's not what happens in my life that scares me. It's the stories I make up about what I think could happen. And what I'm getting at is this, and Bill, this is Bill's, one of Bill's quotes, I love this. He said, we, shouldn't have, we should never have a thought in our mind that isn't in his. We shouldn't entertain thoughts that reduce us. The children of Israel finally cross the Jordan River, and God totally blesses them. They drive every enemy out of their land. And yet, the dogs of doom usually bark at the doors of our destiny. Most people, or many Christians, never come into their destiny because when they get close to it, the dogs start barking. And instead of pushing forward and go, there must be a great treasure, we back up and think, well, I guess we're supposed to live over here because that looks scary. And I'm like, what would happen if you kick the dogs in the teeth? metaphorically speaking, and move forward into your destiny. There's a great book. Has anybody read the book, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell? It's such a great book. I read it many years ago. Um, um, It's How Little Things Make a Big Difference. And he tells a story in there. The book actually opens with a story of Kitty Greeson, who was brutally raped and murdered in 1964 in Queens, New York. And the shocking thing uh, about the rape and the murder is that it happened in broad daylight with 38 people watching and not one person intervened. 
Many years later, they went back, and two uh, New York City psychologists went back, and they studied. They were like, okay, why did those 38 people, why did they not respond? And they interviewed several of those people, and then they did some experiments. And one of the experiments that they did um, was that they took a student, and they staged an epileptic fit. When there was one person in the next door that could hear them, and 85% of the time, when one person heard a person having uh, an epileptic fit or a crisis, they would come over and try to help. As soon as they put, it, it, as soon as they put them in a crowd of, more, of four people or more, only 31% of the time did anyone ever go to help. They did another experiment where they uh, caused smoke to seep out through a door. When one person was near that 75% of the time, that person would actually respond. When they were in a group of more than one, only 38% of the time did they ever respond. And what they learned is this, that they discovered that the larger the crowd that witnesses a crime, the less likely they are to intervene. They call it the crowd syndrome. And what they learned is this, everybody thinks everyone else is going to do it. You know, we have this idea, especially if you're raised in a, democratic country. We have this idea that majorities change history. And I'd propose to you that that's not true. I'd propose to you that history is always changed first by someone who steps out of the crowd. Somebody who says, who steps out of the crowd of fear and complacency and decides to do something. Now, it's often many other people join them, but it's, almost, it's always somebody who says, I'm tired of this, I'm leaving this, I'm not staying in this place, and they step out of the crowd and they, and they create a movement. And I'd like to suggest to you that, that movements do not, do not define men. Men define movements. Women define movements. Are you with me? And I'm saying that we, you know, we have this thing, and I think it's good. It's coming from a good heart. And we say things, that I hear it all the time in Christian crowds. If all the churches could just get together in our city, we could actually change history. And I'd suggest to you that Jesus couldn't get 12 guys to get along when he was with them. And they changed history. I love that people get along when they go along. It's just not necessary to change history like that. I'm saying, when we think that, we reduce God down to president of president, and he's king of kings. He just says, I'm looking for someone. (laughs) I'm looking for a man. The eyes of the Lord go to and forth throughout the earth, looking for one person whose heart is wholly his, that he might strongly support him. God said to Jeremiah, go through the city, this is Old Testament, go through the city and find one person. If you can find one person, I will pardon the entire city. And I'm saying to you, you're like, well, somebody should step up. If you're having that thought, it's probably you. <laughs> Banning was sharing, oh man, I loved Banning's message. It was so touching me. I, I was like, this is it right here. And Banning was talking about, um, about you know, how every person in his church is actually a member of the body and has responsibility. And I was thinking about it with our city. Our city is our city. Reading is in trouble. We have, we have a serious crime problem. A thousand people in our city commit 80% of all crimes in our city. A thousand people. And this week, there's, there was at the city council, there was a call for two city council members to resign because of crime, da-da-da-da-da, and on and on and on. And I certainly understand that. But how many understand that crime is not a city council problem? 
If you're in this city, it's your responsibility. And if that one of those thousand people are sitting next is are in your neighborhood, it's definitely your responsibility. You should be praying, walking around the house, shouting seven times after the <laughs> blowing trumpets. I'm saying, what if everybody in the city said, I'm going to take on one of those thousand people? <laughs> they are my person. I'm going to pastor that person. If they don't want to be pastored, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to shepherd them. I'm going to cast demons out of them. I'm going to change my city by changing this one person. And all I'm saying is, you can blame the city council, but this is not a city council problem. The city changes when everyone takes ownership of their city. Boy, our city's dirty. There's just trash all over. What are you doing about it? Do you pick up trash? You can't pick up all the trash, but you can pick up the trash that you encounter. I'm just saying it's just that way. It doesn't, it's not hard. God honors sacrifice. I tell our students, how many of you want to change the world? They all raise their hand. When you go in the restroom, if the restroom's dirty, pick up the trash. If, until you do what you can do, you'll never do what you can't do. It's not that hard. <laughs> in 1955, a 42-year-old black woman, exhausted from a hard day at work, refused to sit in the back of a transit bus. The southern bus driver warned her that her defiance would be cause for him to call the police and have her arrested. But she'd had enough of white bigotry. She, res she resented being judged by the color of her skin instead of the integrity of her heart. So she steadfastly refused to move. Her name was Rosa Parks. Rosa stepped out of the crowd and made the call. She wasn't part of a movement. There was no movement. Instead, Mrs. Parks put her shoulder into the boulder of history and gave it a shove, and history moved. She didn't just cause a movement. She created forward motion. Later in life, Rosa Parks said, without a vision, the people perish, but without courage, dreams die. <laughs> you can always tell how close you live to the palace by how you respond to injustice. Remember, Moses was raised in the palace of Pharaoh. Why was Moses raised in the palace? Because a man who's in slavery internally cannot free people who are in slavery externally. Therefore, it was necessary for Moses to be raised as a prince so he could free God's people. What, happened when, what happens when you're raised as a prince? Well, when you're raised with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is king of the entire known world that, you, that you're a part of, and you see injustice, how many know you think, well, I should do something about this. Why do you think like that? Because Pharaoh thinks like that. So when Moses saw his brothers being mistreated, how many understand, he thought, I should do something about this. Why? Because he lived close to the palace. He thought like a king. Do you know that Jesus is king of kings? And Paul said, you're already kings? Though you are king, you are the king, you are the kings he's king over. And when you see injustice in your city, it's your responsibility. And if you feel small, it's because you don't know who you are. Thank you, Chris, for that. The size of a man can often be determined by the size of the problem it takes to discourage him. The level of sacrifice that culture requires will determine the size of people who will follow. 
sacrifice separates people. So there's this thing about history. History is always made by people who are courageous and who care. And it's funny because lots of people care, but they're like, I'm not courageous. You know, do you know courage isn't a feeling? It's a response to fear. Somebody once said, courage is fear that said its prayers. I had a a man one time say to me, you are fearless. And I'm like, no, no, I actually deal with fear all the time. I'm not fearless, I'm courageous. I don't know very many fearless people who aren't crazy. There's a few schizophrenic people who are fearless, and they scare me. I'm saying fear is, is, it's normal to be afraid. What, you, what we do with fear, what I do with fear, what you do with fear, how many know determines whether you're courageous or fearful. So people that do ex- exploits, some of us think, well, if I had the courage they had, I could do that. No, they don't have a lot of, they're not, they're not fearless. It's not the absence of fear. It's the presence of, yes, I'm going to do this. I might be shaking, but I'm doing this anyway. What happens when somebody breaks out of the crowd? Or Rosa Parks says, I'm, I'm, listen, I've been sitting back in the bus for 20 years. I'm not sitting back there anymore. Lady, if you don't get in the back of the bus, I'm going to call the police. You can call whoever you want, but I'm not sitting back there. How many understand that a personal victory becomes a corporate breakthrough? Something happens when you have a victory. It was, it was Goliath who actually prophesied to the armies of Israel. He said, send me a man. If I beat him, we will all serve you. But if you, but, I'm sorry, if you, yeah, if he beats me, we will all serve you. But if I beat him, you will all serve us. And what he said is, is actually so profoundly prophetic. He said, if you find someone who can beat me, his personal victory will actually be a corporate blessing. What does it mean to actually be a leader, a spiritual leader? It means that you win your personal victory so you can be a corporate covering. A lot of people are are trying to be a corporate covering, but they're never actually won a personal victory. Joseph, in the Old Testament, you remember Joseph. He had this dream that he was going to be the ruler of the world. Remember this? And he ends up going first to slavery and then to prison and finally to the palace. What happens when Joseph finally gets to the palace? 72 of his family come into Egypt and they get the land of Goshen, the best land of Egypt. Pharaoh gives them the best land of Egypt. How did that happen? Joseph won a personal victory. How did he do that? He forgave his brothers. He stayed out of Potiphar's wife's bed and he kept his vision alive when it looked like what God said would never happen. He kept his dream alive. And because of, he, because of his personal victory, 72 of, the, of his family actually didn't get what they deserved. They got what Joseph de- deserved. How many know sowing and reaping is awesome? The lowest level of life is curses. That means you do the right thing, but the wrong thing still happens. The next level of life is sowing and reaping. That means what you sowed, what you planted, you actually get to eat its fruit. But how many know the highest level of life is not sowing and reaping? It's blessing. It's inheritance. That means you get what someone else deserved. What happens when you come under a corporate covering where people, where leaders, 
men and women have actually won a personal victory with God. How many understand a personal victory with God actually becomes a corporate blessing in which you get not what you deserve, but you get what they deserve. This is fatherhood. This is motherhood. This is inheritance. This is, a, this is the gift of laying on of hands. What happens? You can spend your whole life in independence. You're like, no, you know, the Lord's my shepherd, which means nobody tells me what to do. That's great, but the highest level of life for you is reduced to reaping and sowing. Sowing and reaping. Because how many know inheritance means I honor the gift that's ahead of me? (laughs) See, the only way I can get an inheritance is to honor the people who have more than I do, which means I have to realize that God loves us all the same, but he favors us differently. (laughs) Jesus said, "When uh, when you go to a banquet, don't sit at the highest seat, because listen to this, someone more distinguished than you may come in. That means there are people who are more distinguished than you. That's why we need the gift of distinguishing of spirits. Because the gift of distinguishing of spirits is not the gift of distinguishing evil spirits. It's the distinguishing of spirits. When I walk into a room with the gift of distinguishing of spirits, I know what place I should sit at the table so that the anointing flows from the top of Aaron's head all the way down to his toes. How many know I get the same anointing that the guy at the head gets if I just stay in line? But when I get out of line, I create dripping points. When I go, you know what? How many know you were supposed to honor the past, live in the present, look to the future? But we don't honor the past. How many know Malachi said, in the last days, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. What's he going to do? He's going to restore the hearts of fathers to sons and sons to fathers. And why? At least I smite the nation with the curse. What's the curse? Dividing generations. When you divide generations, how many know you take away inheritance in everyone? What you could get for free, you spend your life working for. You know what a double anointing is? It's the one you earn and the one someone else gave you. I'm simply saying, you want to live in inheritance, then you have to have honor. If you honor your mother and father, you're going to have what? Life. Life flows in honor. It's funny to me, it's not in my notes, I'm way off track on my notes, but I'm right on track with the Holy Spirit right now. It's funny to me, not in a hilarious way, that we spend our lives judging our president, our leaders, in front of our children, and then wonder why our children don't respect us. We taught our children... It doesn't matter who you are. You are not beyond the critical critique, I mean, I'm sorry, critiquing of your father, of your mother. We go to church and we go home and critique the sermon. I'm like, you know what? You want your kids to respect you? You need to learn how to respect authority. We live in a world where nobody respects, where very few people respect authority. You get on the news channel, and don't matter who's president, President Obama, President Trump, before that, President Clinton, President Bush, it doesn't matter who, just pick your favorite president. It doesn't matter who. The talk shows spend hours critiquing every single word, taking every single thing apart, what he should have said, what he shouldn't have said, what she should have said, what she shouldn't have said, and it should have said, and if he did it, if he did the right thing, he did it too late. And if he did it the right thing on time, he did it for a bad motive. And it just goes on and on and on. A critical spirit seeps into our life, and we wonder why our children end up with no inheritance, because we teach them to not actually honor authority. 
Well, you don't understand. I, you know, the president was promoting abortion, and I'm not. I'm, I'm like, fine. You can be. You don't have to agree with someone to honor them. I can disagree with you and still honor you. No matter who's president, I'm called to love them. If they, if they're my enemy, I'm called to love my enemy. I, by the way, I'm not saying any president's my enemy, but. If they're my enemy, I'm still called to love my enemy. I'm called to respect people who God puts in office and all authority. Romans 13 is there by God. I may not like what they do. I was talking to Dan Fairley this week, and we were, ta- we were dialoguing about the way God thinks. And I was, I was sharing with him that I'm, I'm trying to learn how God thinks as it refers to leaders in cities. And I, I'm looking through the Old Testament, for example, and Rehoboam, God sends a prophet to Rehoboam, God anoints Rehoboam king. And the very next day it says, and the first thing Rehoboam did is set up two golden calves and cause Israel to worship golden calves. Who anointed him as king? God did. What did he do? Evil, right away. Did God know he was going to do that? God totally could know he was going to do that. And I'm simply saying, it's like, I don't know how this works, but we have to learn if we want to have inheritance, we better figure out how to live in honor. Thank you, Lord. What happens when we do that? We begin to create a highway where we can get what someone else worked for. I love the story of David, of course. David's called the father to to kings that are 300 years, 400 years removed from him. God says to several kings, if you read the book of 1 and 2 Kings, uh, David obviously is long gone. David died uh, at the end of the book of Samuel. So I'm sorry, in the first chapter of the book of Kings. And so David was, died you know, way before other kings became king. And God would say to some of the wicked kings, I would destroy you if it wasn't for your father David. How many understand that David was never a biological father to any of those kings? But David won a personal victory. And his personal victory actually caused God to treat people 300 years removed from him, not as they deserve, but as David deserved. How many of you know when you win a victory with God, you win a victory... I mean, you know, God doesn't live in time. God lives in eternity. God lives in the timeless zone. Whenever you win a victory with God, do you know that that victory transcends time and space? So that your children's 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 children, at least one generation removed from you being on the planet, are actually receiving not what they deserve, but what you deserve? Do you know that you, when you received Jesus, you became part of... You, you, you received eternal life, and you became a part of the eternal family, past, present, and future. Do you know that Jesus is the one who was, and is, and is to come? He is currently the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. And you are hidden where? In Christ. I'm saying, your, you, your life is affecting people who went before you, people who are with you, and people who will come after you. Sometimes you're like, you know, we went to, I, God called us to the city. I have no idea what, what's happening in the city. Like, why, why am I here? You know, it may not be about you. It may be about your great, great, great grandkids. You may be in that city for 100 years from now. I'm saying, God may move you here for the sake of your great, great grandchild. Because God does stuff from eternity. <laughs> I love what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. He said, God has put eternity in our hearts without which no one can know the ways God thinks from the beginning to the end. 
when we start realizing that it's not all about me, it's all about us. The Lord's Prayer is not my Father, it's our Father. I'm saying when we start thinking like God thinks, God put us in a family. I'm supposed to be praying not about me, not about you, about all (laughs) y'all. Right? And then my life starts to make sense when I realize that God can move, he can move this chess piece over here actually for the benefit of this over here. Does that make sense? I love the story of of Roger Bannister. In May May 6, 1954, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. I'm sure you know the story, a very popular story. The interesting thing about the four-minute mile is that about 10 years earlier, a bunch of scientists got together and they, they, were, they were trying to discover why a human had never run faster than four minutes. And in, um, in, the, in the most uh, respected medical journal, journal, I think it was 10 or 12 years before, they determined that a human being could physically not run faster than a four-minute mile. And in 1954, May 6, 1954, Roger Bannister ran a mile in three minutes, 59 seconds, 59.4 seconds. Interesting thing is six weeks later, on June 21st, 1954, John Landy broke his record. And since then, as we know, thousands of runners have run faster than a four-minute mile. What happened? Well, one of the things that happened is when John, I'm sorry, when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, other people began to follow me, believe that they could break a four-minute mile. I'm saying he didn't, obviously, in the natural, he obviously broke, he actually did something physical. He actually ran a three-minute, 59-second mile. But why did a whole bunch of people that few months later, and, and now thousands of people, why did they begin to break that three-minute mile, that four-minute mile? Because they began to believe that they could. How many understand faith doesn't just work in the church? Faith works for everything. If you believe the stock market's going to go up, you know what controls the stock market? What you think the stock market should be, that's what determines what the stock market will be. (laughs) Your personal victory becomes a corporate blessing. When you break the four-minute mile, metaphorically speaking, the people around you go, it's possible. And when they think it's possible, how many of you know all things are possible to those who believe? Do you understand? We are not optimists. We are believers. A pessimist sees the cup half empty. An optimist sees the cup half full. But a believer isn't concerned with the contents of the cup, but the source of the content. I don't care if the cup's empty. If God says the cup's going to be full, my faith isn't on what the cup looks like, but on what the source of the cup says. I'm not an optimist. I'm a believer. I don't look at circumstances and based on circumstances determine whether or not I feel good about it. I look at the source of the circumstances and I go, God says the cup's full. Well, the cup's empty. Well, God says the cup's full. And I remember the widow... You know, Elijah and Elisha both encountered widows who were both broke. And Elijah said to the widow, like, what do you have? She's like, nothing, just, I don't know, just got some, you know, a little bit of oil in them. And he goes, go get some jars. And how many know she's got a little bit of oil? But that's not what God said she had. 
I mean, how many know Elijah, Elisha, they're not optimists. They're believers. It's a good word. When we begin to move with God, we're going to take risks. And that means we're going to fail sometimes. Go, I've taken lots of risks and I've never failed. (laughs) If you haven't failed, you haven't taken risks. I I love uh, Peter in the Bible. I so relate to Peter. And Jesus is, says to his disciples, you know, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, no way that ain't going to happen as long as I'm here. I got this sword. And Jesus said, not only am I going to die, but you're going to deny me three times. No way. It'll never happen. They may all deny you, but it ain't going to be me. And Peter denies, as we know, Jesus three times. How many know Peter denies Jesus and Judas denies Jesus? They both betray Jesus. One man hangs himself and the other one becomes the head of the church. It's really important that when we move in courage, that we learn how to fail successfully. When Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus rose from the dead, he encounters Mary, as we know, in Mark 16, 7. And he says to Mary, go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm alive. (laughs) Go tell the disciples and Peter. Why did she have to say... Why did Jesus have to say, and Peter? Because none of the disciples thought that Peter was a disciple anymore. So Jesus says to Mary, go tell the disciples. And by the way, Peter's one of my disciples. How do you fail in a way that your failure isn't final? I'd like to propose to you that regret will keep you from your divine success. Your failures are either stumbling blocks or stepping stones. The way you respond to your failure determines whether or not you learn something and advance or whether or not that becomes a stumbling block. It's funny, how many of you know you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes? Uh, I want to, how are we doing for time? A few more minutes. I want to share a few, (coughs) sorry. (laughs) Obviously, I have a cold. I want to share a few things about taking risks. First one is, how you feel isn't how you're doing. Let me say it again. How you feel isn't how you're doing. When you're taking risks, you're like, I mean, I don't feel very good about it. Well, you may be doing awesome when you don't think you're doing well. How many know you're being led by the Spirit, not by the soul? Number two, do what you do when you feel like it when you don't. How do I win when I'm taking risks? Well, I'll tell you, the difference between winning and losing is winners do when they don't feel like it what they do when they feel like it. You want, to have a good, you want to have a great marriage? Been married 41 years. Been with this woman since, I was, since she was 12. Got engaged when she was 13. <clears throat> How do you have a great marriage? I treat my, li- my wife, I treat my wife well 
when I feel like it. And when I don't feel like it, I treat her well. See, everyone treats people well when they feel like it, but the difference between a noble person and a, not, and a virtuous person is a virtuous person only does what they want to do when they feel like it. I told uh, the story a while back. This guy came into my office. His wife brought him in. She was a believer. He wasn't. And anyway, long story, their marriage was in trouble, and she wanted a divorce. And so he, came, he decided that he would come in to save uh, his wife from divorcing him. And she, was, she, would say, she said things to him like, you don't respect me. And he's like, and he said to, I remember this, he said, I took you to Paris twice in two years. And she said, but you leave your underwear on the floor every morning. And every morning I tell you, pick up your underwear. And I said to him, you can't fix with Paris what you broke with your underwear. (laughs) How many know you can't fix with Paris what you broke with your underwear? It's great that we had great times together, but how many know great times together won't save marriage? Great times together won't save a city. Great times together won't, won't change the world. What changes the world is when you do what you do when you don't feel like it, when you do. Awesome. Okay. Um, Almost done. Perseverance. Last thing, I'll just say this. Don't give up. (laughs) Don't stop. Don't quit. Don't give up. We live in an instant gratification generation. We all do. I, you know, I said to my students, there used to be a time when you didn't have money, you're not going to believe this, and you couldn't buy anything. <laughs> like, when you didn't have money, you actually couldn't buy anything. They're like, oh, oh my God, how did people live? You remember when fast food was grandma? I mean, you come, you come to Grandma's house, and you're like, you know, what's, when's dinner? In an hour. I'm hungry now. Well, I don't know what to tell you. We're not eating for an hour. What are we having? Chicken. I don't like chicken. Okay, well, dinner isn't for you for 25 more hours. <laughs> it wasn't nothing like, you know, push a button, order a menu, fast food. You don't get it in four minutes. You're like, oh, my God, what do they call this fast food? I've been here for five minutes. Now they want me to drive around and they'll bring it out to me. I was so instant gratification. Like, we just expect everything is like that. And we come in the kingdom and people say this all the time. Students are like, I don't know what to do. I prayed for this thing and it, and it didn't happen. I'm like, how long have you been praying for? Three days. Oh, my Lord. You're kidding. Yes, I've been praying three days. What do I do? Pray three more. Well, what happens if it doesn't happen in six just keep praying. Just keep praying. You know, when, when I was a believer, I, I, when I was a believer, I used to be a believer. Oh, Lord. I should land this plane pretty quickly. When I first got saved into a Pentecostal church, they used to call it Terry. How many people in here had ever tarried? 
You tarried, that means you prayed all night, you fasted all day, you, you just kept praying. And that was for people to get saved. So it wasn't like, hey, who'd like to receive Jesus? Raise your hand. It was like, okay, you raise your hand. Okay, come on. You're going to tarry for your salvation. How long is that going to be? I don't know. Till the Lord shows up. Months, maybe. <laughs> and you meet people like, what are you doing here? I'm tarrying for my salvation. I'm, you know, I understand it was bad theology, but... <laughs> The challenge is that we, the challenge that, that we have in a, in, in a supernatural culture is we end up believing that everything should be instant. It's instant gratification. And sometimes God takes a long time to act suddenly. <laughs> we see some of these videos and we're like, awesome, that lady was here when people prayed for her. Yeah, but she was in school every day. What you didn't hear on that last video is they prayed for her every day in school. And the last day of school, she got healed. What'd she do? She refused to give up. It's the widow. We talked about it day one. It's the widow and the wicked judge. And, you know, faith is, is spelled perseverance. We just keep going. We just keep trying. <laughs> and I, what would happen if the, the most creative generation in the history of the world, the millennials, met Grandpa? And took on grandpa's core values. I don't quit. I work hard. I don't stop till the job's done. (laughs) What would happen if the millennial generation took on the core values of two generations behind them and said, we're going to stay with this invention until we make it work. There's just something something about perseverance. And Bible says that perseverance works character and character creates hope. About a... Six months ago, I built a table for outside. <laughs> a picnic table. It's a big one, though. It's seven feet round, and it's beautiful. It's got posts that are this big, and it's got... I, I cut square holes and put the poles through them, and, and I worked on it for days and days and days. I went and got special lumber, milled. It was, it's r- completely a round table. I laminated the wood together. It was beautiful. I sprayed it. I, put, I mean, it was beautiful. It looked like it should be indoors, but it was outdoor table. So I put, it out, I put it outside, and uh, the first thing that happened is, is that within about the first day the sun came out, because it's during the winter, first day the sun came out, that sap came through all the wood. And so I cleaned it all off, and it came again, I cleaned it all off, and it came again. So I cleaned it off really good, and I resprayed it like three times with more lacquer, and tried to seal it, and it came, just came through. I mean, big puddles of it. Like, there'd be puddles like that, like a hundred of them all over. You couldn't even use it. So I finally kept spraying it and waxing it and spraying it and looking at, you know, in the internet, like, what do you, how do you stop this stuff from coming up? And so I finally got so many coats on it, it kind of, it was usable. And then the sun came up for two weeks and the table cracked in half. <laughs> Literally, it cracked like this wide crack right through the middle of the table. And I'm like, I will not be defeated. I had refinished the table three times. And so I came out one morning, and it literally was like, first it went like this. So I built a complete frame. That's the second thing. So I refinished it three times, and I built another frame underneath it going this way, and I screwed it down with 20 bolts. It pulled it straight. The next hot day, it cracked in half, literally an inch and a half wide, like the parting of the Red Sea. Not a little crack. You couldn't, like, you, you would have to go buy all the, you know, the putty at Home Depot to fill the crack. 
So I'm like, oh man, what do I do? So I, I, took, I took the top off, I took it all apart, I, I, I straightened it all out, I, and I, I glued it together with Gorilla Glue, I clamped it, I refinished the entire top again, and it went bad in, inside the, the, the thing. In, it, it, there was a problem with the way I refinished it, so I had to sand the whole thing down again and refinish the whole thing, clamped it all together, waited two days so it dried really good, sprayed it with you know 20 coats of lacquer, took it outside, four days later, it cracked in half again. Kathy's all, throw that table away. <laughs> you know, now I got like $1,400 in like, you know, like a $800 table. I walk out there. This is a true story. I, wa- I see it, and we live on three acres. I, I go out in the morning. I see it. I'm in my underwear. And I, I'm so upset. I walk out in my underwear. I'm like, this is unbelievable. I go upstairs. I said, that thing cracked in half again. She's like, honey, just, why don't we just buy a table? I told you we should buy I said, oh no, that ain't going to happen now. <laughs> I took the whole top, I, I, took it, I, I, I brought it to the shop. It, it weighs 400 pounds. It weighs 400 pounds. So my, my son and I, he helped me. I carried the shop. I tore the top off. I went and got new wood, red wood. I glued the whole thing together. I got dry wood, everything. I picked every single piece, glued the whole freaking thing together, <laughs> cut it, sealed it four times, took it outside. The next day, after the top, I screwed the top to the bottom, and I, within two hours, all of the varathane bubbled. It was so hot. It just turned into, like, acne. <laughs> the whole table peeled off. Kathy walks by, she's like, go get, I said, just shut up. You see a table, I see character, this table will not defeat me. I got underneath that thing, she can tell you this is the truth, I screwed, unscrewed the whole thing by myself, I carried the thing in there, my dog's like, my dog's like, give up. Sanded the whole thing down again, the entire thing, restained the whole thing, took me an entire eight hours, you know, put varathane on it, left it in there for three days so it'd be hard, took it out there, bolted it all down, two days, I mean two weeks of 110 degree heat, I'm like, awesome, I have won. Go out three days ago, it cracked <laughs> on the seam. I'm like, oh, that's not so bad. I just fixed it again two days ago. Put a little piece in there, glued it all down. I go out every morning. She's good. Have you ever, do you ever have something go on that you're like, you know, I'm a business guy. I should throw this table away and go buy another one. But I'm like, this is, this is bigger than that. This is like, this is about character. I am not, every time I walk by that table now, I'm like, I defeated you. You will not defeat me. My dog's even proud. He's like, he just walks around and he's like, look, no cracks. There's something about not giving up. I just like, there's something about my grandfather just beat it into my head. Like, don't quit. I'm like, I, if I, my grandfather, he'd roll over his grave if I didn't fix this table. There's something about history makers. They just don't quit. Don't quit. Would you stand? I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to do a fire tunnel. 
We, I want you to hear this. We are going to have a great city. I'm saying, when you come to Reading in the next five years, you're going to be like, this is the most amazing city I've ever been in. You know why? Because we ain't going to give up. We've been doing stuff in our city, and it's not been helping. But you know why I know we're going to win? Because we're not going to quit. We're not going to quit till our crime rate's low, till our, our, our city prospers, till businesses want to come here, till people want to live here. You get it? Till we have a, an amazing university, till our poor people are taken care of, till our crime rate's low, till it's like, if you do the crime, you're going to do time in our city. <laughs> I mean, that is what our city's going to be. And I hang out with some of our leaders that are like, oh, we've been working on this for 20 years. Well, let's work on it for 21. Let's work on it for 22. Like, if I could defeat a table, we're going to sell this city. <laughs> I want to pray for y'all. So, Lord, I just pray in Jesus' name for a courageous spirit. Like on Tracy Evans would be on this whole congregation. That there would be such a crazy, amazing, bold spirit. It'd be like in the book of Acts, after they were beaten, and they were thanked God to be beaten, and then they prayed for more boldness, and it says, and the place where they prayed was shaken. <laughs> God, I pray that you would shake this place. I pray that you would shake us into a new dimension. That you would awaken us to our dreams. Lord, when we go home, metaphorically speaking, when we see that table that's been defeating us for years, we're like, you are going to lose. I have a new spirit of perseverance on me, and I'm going to win. And Lord, I pray that whether it's a relationship with a, with a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife, or whether it's a financial issue, it's like we've been poor for generations, but that's not going to stay that way on my shift. I'm going to move... I'm going to move the mark on my shift. My children's children will not grow up in poverty. They will grow up in prosperity because I am not going to quit. I'm staying with the Lord. I'm going to have faith. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to believe what God said and not what my circumstances say. I don't care how much is in the cup. I believe God my source and he's going to fill that cup because he said he would. And Lord, I just pray that we would get, that we would get vigilant that we would get vigilant about our purpose, that we would get righteously indignant about our purpose. God said it, I believe it. That's the way it is. And that we would teach our children, don't give up, don't quit. Come on, keep going. Lord, I just bless your people right now with this gift of boldness and perseverance. And may we be the greatest risk takers on the planet. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, I receive that for myself. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelleton.com. Have an awesome day.